This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, we look at how the rapid rise of AI could be changing the news our media give us and maybe even the music as well. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair. But first, we look at how an aggressive front-page attack ad on Christopher Luxon this week raised questions about what's allowed in election ads and what's actually fair. And so did the coverage of another paper in the National Party leader's own backyard. I was doing my breakfast show on gold, the home of the greatest hits. The newspaper arrived at five in the morning and it was the Herald. At the top, there was a banner that said nearly 200 firms probed in migrant visa scandal. And then... It has a big picture of a very grumpy-looking Christopher Luxon. The uh, script says advertisement, and then Christopher Luxon, out of touch, too much risk. That was News Talk ZB's afternoon host Andrew Dickens telling listeners how the front page of ZB's NZME stablemate, the New Zealand Herald, startled him last Monday morning because it had been taken over by an attack ad bought, paid for and made for the Council of Trade Unions. Now the same almost gothically grumpy image of the National Party leader also stared down from billboards around the country that same morning and it was in spookily soundtracked social media ads. Luxon isn't the right leader in a cost of living crisis because he doesn't understand... Now that was clearly an election advocacy ad and it was identified as such in the Herald. But as soon as it came through the Herald's ad department, the senior editors there must have known that the Herald's decision to host it would also have become news. ZB's Andrew Dickens certainly thought it was. This is why I'm talking about it on the radio. It's my company, but I'm not involved with this decision. It's another branch over there. And I think they need to write about it and say how they actually determine who gets the wraparounds. And it did indeed raise questions about picking and choosing of advertisers, as we'll hear later. But the Herald didn't want to talk about it on RNZ's midday report that same day. Murray Kirkness, NZME's Chief Content Officer uh, for Publishing, has declined our request for an interview. And back on ZB, the morning host Kerry Woodham said it was all about the money for the Herald and not the politics. That's democracy, and if citizens and ratepayers decided to put something out about Hipkins' inability to be an effective Prime Minister, then I'm quite sure the Herald would take the money and wrap the ad around the newspaper. You've got to survive in the media. You've got to take the ads. And a former Herald editor, Tim Murphy, also pointed out on Monday that election ads on the front page aren't entirely unprecedented. In previous elections, the Herald has allowed the National Party to add detachable blue stickers to the weekend edition until late in the campaign. And once papers opened the door to wraparound front and back page ads for retailers, it was only a matter of time, he said, before someone selling political messages rather than fridges took up the space as well. Uh, You have to say those Harvey Norman ads are very welcome in a cost-of-living crisis which sees advertising down. Now, Andrew Dickens went on to explain to his ZB listeners that that CTU attack ad was within the rules for political promotion by third parties. As long as they're registered, they can spend the thick end of $400,000 on ads doing down political opponents if they want to. And one such registered outfit is the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, which says it's non-partisan, but has placed a lot of large newspaper ads recently, giving the government a hard time. Now, one recent double-page Taxpayers Union ad in the Stuff Daily Papers 
even darkly accused the government of Soviet-style central planning and depicted the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins on some sort of Cossack horse. But in spite of that, the New Zealand Taxpayers' Union complained this week that the CTU's Herald ad was inappropriate. And it turned out that its executive director, Jordan Williams, was listening to Andrew Dickens on ZB on Monday, and he phoned in to explain. But I can't recall any ad we've done that leads with, frankly, just an ad hominem attack. Every one of our campaigns is focused around policy. Now, of course, we use the pictures of the politicians or the decision makers. So, you know, look at the Christopher Luxon, out of touch, too much risk. The front page of the Herald, there's no reference to policy whatsoever. Though, as Andrew Dickens pointed out, the political policy points were just over the page in the Herald and the CTU wasn't spending any taxpayers' money. On scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that front page posse notwithstanding, there was nothing really novel about an ad criticising a party leader who was actively campaigning as the embodiment of his party's policies. And that's probably what the Herald reckoned when they okayed that front page takeover. On Newstalk ZB, Andrew Dickens added this. This will probably backfire on the Herald because, here we go, here's a text right now. I have cancelled my subscription to the New Zealand Herald because of the ad on the front cover. To say this has nothing to do with the Labour Party is nonsense. And true enough, it's not just an issue for the paper, but also for commercial radio networks like his own. And while obviously we will not accept ads that are false, wrong, lies or are defamation. And Newstalk ZB found that out back in 2019 when it ran a political ad in which mayoral candidate John Tamahiri said no suburb will escape the crazy plan to cut the speed limits on Auckland roads. The Advertising Standards Authority said, in fact, that was false, and NZME told the Advertising Standards Authority apologetically it had presumed the client's script and figures provided were correct. And it said... Our team has been reminded to be vigilant when accepting advocacy advertisements to avoid this from reoccurring. But at that time, the Herald had just published another political ad, also coincidentally featuring Christopher Luxon. Now, he was not even a member of the National Party at that point, let alone a candidate, but the Herald's half-page ad showed former Prime Minister John Key morphing into Christopher Luxon, and the ad also made the news... An advertisement with the New Zealand Herald on Saturday suggesting the outgoing Air New Zealand chief executive should run for the National Party leadership for next year's election is unlawful. The ad is a reworking of Dick Frizzell's well-known artwork, Mickey Tutiki. Well, the client for that ad turned out to be not the Nats, but property tycoon Stephen Brooks, who really wanted National to make Luxon, then ex-John Key. And at the time, another former Herald editor, Gavin Ellis, wasn't impressed. It surprised me and surprised me greatly that the Herald on Sunday would ro- run that ad without first checking with the National Party and uh, Mr Luxon to see whether they were responsible. Well, in fact, it was the Weekend Herald and not the Herald on Sunday that took that ad, but that's all history now. But last Monday, ZB listeners were phoning in more concerned about other ads that the Herald wouldn't print in the recent past. I heard from... Bob McCoskey at Family First, Mm. that he had an ad to play, you know, willing to pay for it and was not allowed. I don't understand that. I just wonder how they pick and choose. Well, there, the call-up Mary was referring to a recent ad campaign from the lobby group Family First, which our three biggest newspaper publishers all declined to run. 
Family First leader Bob McCoskery accused them of colluding to cancel the ad, which had the slogan, What is a Woman?, and the address for a campaign website arguing it's time to push back against gender self-identification. Now, he said the ad departments of each publisher had initially accepted the ad, but then the editors decided they weren't fit to print. But while the paper publishers exercised their right not to print that ad, they did go up on billboards in public. And last month, the Advertising Standards Authority Complaints Board upheld a complaint about them, ruling the ad was misleading and not socially responsible because the identity of the advertiser, Family First, wasn't sufficiently clear for an advocacy ad. Now, for all the objections to the aggressively political nature of the CTU's Christopher Luxon ad in the Herald last Monday, that wasn't the issue at all. But from today, Sunday the 10th of September, things are a little different in our media. Until the day before the election, we're in the official election period. So during this time, special rules and a separate dedicated code of broadcasting practice apply to what are known as election programmes, which are defined as advertisements by or for a party or candidate, broadcast on radio or TV, and which encourage voters to vote in particular ways or for particular parties or people. So broadcasters and publishers will be paying extra attention to balance and fairness now, with the watchdogs running a special fast-track process for complaints about things like serious allegations about integrity and seriously misleading claims. While that anti-Christopher Luxon ad startled some Herald readers last Monday, as we've just heard, some readers of another paper in his own backyard in Auckland have been wondering lately whether that one leans very much the other way. The independently owned weekly, Howick Pakuranga Times, covering the current electorates of Pakuranga, whose MP is Nationals Simeon Brown, and also Botany, represented by National Party leader Christopher Luxon these past three years. Both MPs feature heavily in the paper's recent news coverage, and so did the ads for Simeon Brown. In the edition of the 2nd of August, for example, the lead story on the paper reported that Christopher Luxon had accused the Labour government of personal attacks against him when he kicked off his local campaign at a local high school. And the facing page had a half page about National's just-launched transport policy, quoting the party's transport spokesperson, who is Simeon Brown, and party leader Christopher Luxon, and nobody else. And elsewhere, in a column taking up another half of a page, the National Party leader himself told readers this in his regular column. National is getting serious about roads, and that is good news for botany. But no other politician, political party or policy appears anywhere else in that edition of the paper. The following week, Simeon Brown told readers Labour had wasted six years on roads and National would deliver. And on the facing page, a story announced Bo Burns as the local ACT Party election candidate for botany. Up against Christopher Luxon, they said, but no other candidate got a mention in the story. And Christopher Luxon is the only candidate mentioned and pictured, along with his dad, in the following week's lead story headlined, The Race for the Beehive is On. Now later in that same edition, Christopher Luxon in his own column urged readers not to fail our kids in education and another news story recorded National Police spokesperson Mark Mitchell making a local speech about law and order alongside the local MP Simeon Brown. One week on, the Times led with National will boost funding for more cancer treatments and a story which had nothing about what anyone other than Christopher Luxon had to say about the cancer funding plan. 
And the leader's message was hammered home again in last week's issue of The Times and Luxon's column headlined, Essential Cancer Treatments Will Be Greenlighted Under National. Now elsewhere, the Hawak Pakaranga Times did at least, and at last, mention the names of other parties and candidates contesting the two electorates, and even that Labour had topped the party vote tallies in both of them last time round. This week on page two of the paper, Simeon Brown is telling readers Kiwis will be better off under National's prudent costed tax plan, and over the page it's Christopher Luxon alongside Simeon Brown with this quote in big letters. You're not helping us by voting for anyone else with the party vote. But some readers of the Howick Pakuranga Times complained to Media Watch this week you might not know there was much choice if you went by the news, the opinion columns and the ads in the paper lately. Some wondered whether the paper had actually endorsed the National Party for the upcoming election or whether the coverage of the party's candidates was tied to the sale of advertising. Were other political parties actually excluded from Hawak Pakaranga Times coverage, they asked, or were they just not engaging with the paper? Well, Times Publishing's long-serving managing director, Ray Nebin, told us she was not keen to be interviewed about this, but she did write back to say there's no political favouritism at the paper, and never has been, over more than 50 years in print. The fact is, we cover local news. When the Labour government has made an announcement about a local project, such as the Eastern Busway, we have covered that. But our two elected local national MPs talk about the local issues far more frequently than the current Labour government does. So, of course, they will appear in our stories more often. Ray Nebin told Media Watch local Labour list MP Naisi Chen did have a column in the paper for years, but not since June when she decided not to be a candidate this time round. And on the matter of advertising, Ray Nebin told us this. All political parties and candidates have been approached for advertising. But so far, none have come back except for the existing contract we have with Simeon and Chris as local MPs. We would love it if more candidates and parties advertised with us. Well, most newspaper publishers would indeed love that. But now we're in the official election period. Can the Times readers expect more news coverage and opinion reflecting the views of political parties other than national, even if they're not quite as active locally? Well, it seems so, according to Ray Eben, who pointed out to Media Watch this week two recent stories on acts to local candidates. And she said the paper's political reporter has interviewed Labour's Pakuranga candidate and approached Labour's botany candidate, and he's doing upcoming stories as well about the minor party candidates. And the same day Ray Eben told Media Watch this, the Times website published a new story about Labour proposing to beef up legal protections against stalking and harassment after the brutal killing of a young student last December. And this was part of Labour's latest law and order election policy announcements. Rainebin also pointed out to us that the Greens aren't standing anyone in Pakaranga or Botany, and neither is New Zealand First. But while it may be that there's not a lot of other campaigning going on in an area where the National Party's MPs seem to have their seats sewn up, party votes are still up for grabs. And reporting politics, even locally, shouldn't be driven just by what the most active politicians and their parties are prepared to say, and especially when one party is your only political advertiser. And that's especially so for all local outlets now that we're in the official election period, where balance and fairness matter more than ever. Well, our business editor, Giles Beckford, is racing he is not here towards yet. the... Do you know uh, what? 
He's not. He's not here. I'm sure. Here he comes. He's rushing. Oh, he's rushing across the studio. Oh goodness! Floor. I wonder if something's happened. He's getting it. Well, this is no, the I very, very latest off the press because <laughs> he hasn't even arrived. That was RNZ's business editor Giles Beckford being lightly teased by Morning Report's co-host last Monday for being a little late with his early update, though not by much. So no big deal. But what is a big deal at the moment? AI. Okay, what about your main bulletin? Well, uh, artificial at, intelligence. It, yeah. It's everywhere, isn't it? And a recent investment analyst is suggesting that there are big uh, potential returns for investors in AI. And maybe in the future, AI-presented business news will always be on time. Now, AI is indeed huge news in business right now. And this week, Newsroom, with the help of a commercial sponsor, launched a new podcast series all about it in New Zealand called AI Harnessing the Speed of Change. It seems artificial intelligence has moved forward at such dizzying speed over the last year, it's rarely out of the news. And it's mostly bad news. And one of those industries working out what it stands to win or lose is our media. Generative AI technology products generate text, images and audio automatically when prompted by people. And the most powerful of the applications are already crawling all over the news media for its input. Google, for example, already does that these days, but when you search, their algorithm gives you choices, whereas AI-powered Search Generative Experience, or SGE, responds to your requests with a single response, which is supposed to be reliable and factual. Earlier this year, though, Gordon Krovitz, the founder of the US-based fake news-finding service NewsGuard, told me that the chatbots aren't that good at it yet. These AI models will create highly persuasive, well-written radio scripts or newspaper articles um, that are written beautifully, perfect grammar, eloquent, and completely false. And the machines don't know the difference unless they're trained. But the same AI tools extracting useful stuff from our news media can also be pretty handy for them in gathering and publishing the news and producing it digitally. Local subscriber service Business Desk, for example, already creates articles in seconds from basic info from the Stock Exchange. And next week we'll look at how our biggest publishers of news are confronting and embracing AI as well. But before all that, what can AI really do for and with media content? Well, that was the focus of the AI Plus Communication Symposium held at the Auckland University of Technology this week. And among the experts in their field, AUT's senior lecturer in journalism, Dr. Maria Mililati, showed how the popular AI tools aren't really that great yet at giving you New Zealand news results. There were no links to Radio New Zealand. There were no links to the TVNZ. Newsroom, no links. The spin-off, the Otaku Daily Times... The Guardian, which has a New Zealand section. So then I asked Google Bard. It most often linked to the sources, but the links go to the wrong sources, wrong stories, or random articles. Well, another part of the media adopting AI for content creation is the ad business. And at the AUT Summit this week, lecturer Daniel Fastnedge, formerly an ad agency art director, used DALI 2 to blend images of a lion and a bat to advertise a car, mimicking a recent successful ad campaign from South Africa. Better than Photoshop on steroids, he said, but probably bad news for other graphic specialists in the business. Traditionally, creating images like that would have involved uh, an art director, a creative director, a designer, a retoucher, and possibly teams that went with them. That could have taken days, weeks, even months to get it to the finished product project. We don't have to employ photographers that we would have previously to create a campaign. 
great. I can do things a lot faster, but I'm also going to be expected to do them a lot faster. A job which would have taken a couple of days previously, now I'm expected to do it in a matter of 20, 30 minutes. And is that a viable and a sustainable practice? Now, this sort of creative power is also of interest to brands who find themselves these days at the mercy of precocious influencers who promote their products but sometimes bring their brands into disrepute. And the AUT's Petra Tunison showed us how corporates use AI to create flawless and scandal-free virtual influencers. Are they authentic? You know, what is authenticity? Are they transparent? Because... We don't know who actually creates these. Models will disappear. They won't have jobs anymore because this will be cheaper. They also don't have to go on a diet. They can eat, as you can see, burgers and never gain an ounce. And similar things are happening in music these days too. AI apps can create compositions, and there's even an AI to fake the voice of Johnny Cash for cover versions. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Now there's stacks of that sort of stuff on TikTok and elsewhere already. But who owns it? Is it even really music? And do we care? Well, the AUT's Peter Hoare has been pondering that, and we'll ask him about it in a minute. But blurring virtuality and reality like this is really not on for news. And AUT researcher Haley Jones has studied how technology is affecting our news gathering and our journalistic practice here and now in New Zealand. Firstly, it's really important to recognise that journalists still draw from the full range of resources to gather news. They're still making phone calls and conducting interviews and writing emails, um, going to location and, and speaking to witnesses. Using algorithmic search tools is just one of the news gathering um, or, uh, tools that journalists use. Algorithms behind the search tools have become an intermediary between journalists and their sources of news. And it's important to try and understand how these algorithms shape the news selection process because Google's a commercial entity. It doesn't operate to the same sort of civic responsibilities that the journalism industry operates to. Um, You actually spent a couple of weeks, didn't you, effectively looking over the shoulder of RNZ journalists in in the newsroom in Auckland. I, I guess you found that Google's just about the first place they go when they need to look up a a fact or a contact or something? Yeah, correct. But I observe journalists using uh, Google to do simple things like fact-checking, you know, finding basic information about a person or a location, um, to more complex searches to gather data. So investigative journalists engaging in what I've been calling a game of search, where they search for a term, then they conducted the search again, they added a word, they changed a word, um, they added the file type um, in order to try and essentially coax um, the information out of Google's algorithm. Journalists have to conduct multiple Google searches, both successfully and unsuccessfully, in order to get the algorithm to provide information to to the right format and in the right context. This didn't always work. So journalists, um, I found, went straight to official sources of information like ministry websites and Statistics New Zealand, for example, And this was an issue mentioned across Radio New Zealand Newsroom, that journalists find these websites really difficult to navigate um, because the data is somewhat buried within the site or indexed really poorly. So it makes it really difficult to search for using both Google search and also um, those individual search tools within those different websites. 
A few journalists mentioned that they wished that there was a search tool that just simply searched uh, through information from official sources or from websites that they perhaps have nominated themselves um, or alternatively save them time from scrolling through all those different government websites in order to try and find the information that they needed. You've actually highlighted there something that might be really different when AI technology becomes more ubiquitous. When you do a Google search, you get all these indexed results and you pick through, you choose the ones that look right or look like they might have what you need. Whereas if you give a simple voice prompt, you ask the AI chatbot to find you something, you'll get one summary, a bunch of so-called facts. But as we know, they're scraping a range of news sources and not always the best ones. So if journalists who have this kind of Google dependency, if we can call it that, end up using AI in that way, it might limit and cut out the sorts of sources they they really need to find? Potentially. I spent time at Radio New Zealand in September 2022 and ChatGPT wasn't launched until November 2022. So I think it would be really interesting to come back into a newsroom like Radio New Zealand and observe how journalists are using ChatGPT and and chatbots and it would be really interesting to see how journalists are interacting with that technology. Uh, I think that one of your slides said little evidence of automation-induced damage, which sounded pretty uh, positive. But if we are getting our news from AI summaries because we're lazy and it's, it's so simple in the future and substandard news sources are being scraped, people are already warning about this. Uh, and if journalists start using these tools, this, this will be something to be concerned about, won't it? But that finding in our research, it's more to do with the fact that algorithmic search tools that journalists use in their news gathering process is caught up in journalism's really strong professional ideology, values serving the public interest and immediacy and being objective and having autonomy. Journalists generally are quite inquisitive and sceptical people. So we're not at the stage where AI is going to completely automate um, the news gathering process or replace journalists. Journalists as well seem to be very aware of the issues and drawbacks associated with algorithmic search tools. For example, the fact that I observed journalists scrolling through pages and pages and pages of Google search results show that they're not just being blindly led by whatever Google thinks is relevant to their research. So they're viewing these results with the knowledge that it is driven by a commercially driven algorithm. And Google's also been testing a product that uses AI uh, to create news stories, and they've been um, pitching it to news organisations in the US, uh, including the Washington Post and the New York Times as well. So Google's really clearly interested in creating tools that journalists will use. And on one hand, this is great because the tools they're using help journalists work more efficiently. But on the other hand, Google is a commercial entity. Um, They include paid search results or ads at the top of their search results. Um, Mind you, they are, you know, labelled as such. But I've spoken to a journalist um, who said that they are often tripped up by these advertisements. Websites appear higher that have been optimised through SEO and, and things like that. So there's also a risk to organisations who depend on these external search tools because they may not fully understand them. And Google changes its algorithm 500 to 600 times a year. Um, So news organisations who use it as a news gathering tool have to constantly respond to it, which is where I think um, is where journalists need to have a really strong digital archive literacy. Well, Peter, if I could bring you in at, at this point, we also heard at the symposium from people doing what we might call creative industries, so visual effects, filmmaking, uh, advertising, and you yourself spoke about music. So there the discussion was whether AI tools become more than just a tool, they become kind of a creative collaborator, part of the creative process. Is that how you see the distinction? 
Yeah, this idea, algorithms, the AI softwares, they can take a lot of the grunt work that you need to do. I mean, like in music, for example, mixing, mastering, all that sort of stuff. There is an art to it, you know, Phil Spector, but <laughs> yeah. it's also incredibly time-consuming and quite routine. There's a kind of line here that, you know, what is labour, what is creativity, where do humans fit in? And there is this thing at the centre, it's the usual human fear that we'll be supplanted um, AI will do things better than we can. It won't be real journalism. It won't be real art. And if you're a musician or, or someone involved, it's not just you're sitting in the studio and mixing. It'll write your press releases. It'll do all that sort of stuff, which can be fairly tedious. And perhaps some people, they're musicians, for heaven's sakes. They're not so good at that, you know. So, funnily enough, just in February, I think it was this year, um, Colin Malloy from the indie band Decemberus, he, he asked ChatGP to generate a song back in February spat out a thing called Sailor's Song, which is a kind of folky type thing. Not a very good song, shall we say. He didn't think much of it, what the A had come up, come up with. Now, there was a collaborative process, and I can see a lot of that happening. Um, things like um, Boomy will generate bits of music. So, so I see it opening up, you know, a lot of creativity for people. In your talk, right at the start, you said the age of manufacture is over oh. in the music business, and now it's all about rights protection. That's the primary focus of the music industry. Is that partly because of these sorts of tools? If you look back over the last hundred years, the music industry, when they started, you know, they owned the machines that made the records, they owned the studios, they owned the warehouses, they took care of the shipping and all that. And over the years, they've backed away from those processes which they can outsource. Their core business has basically always been keeping track of copyrights, owning copyrights. I don't think it's going to be a problem because it's a corporate issue. Corporates will call in lawyers. Lawyers will sort things out. We'll have new laws. Every piece of tech that came along was so cassettes, records, films, all this stuff. They create new legal issues. They're perfectly resolvable. Yeah, you mentioned in your talk, you said the music industry has proven pretty good at protecting its rights when new technologies develop down the years. But Haley, just thinking about this in terms of journalism, the AI chatbots are scraping for news, big names in news, uh, taking new new measures to prevent uh, the the software of the chatbots calling over their content and scraping it up. Because there's value in that in journalism, isn't there, for the, the AI spitting it back out to customers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, back when the internet first came along, uh, journalism sort of gave away a lot of its intellectual property for free by putting journalism online for free. Um, So I think we're seeing a bit of like a a pushback, I think, from the journalism industry in in terms of striking deals with AI programs. It's it's going to be very interesting to see how AI and journalism interact over the next uh, five to ten years or so. Um, But there, yeah, there are definitely opportunities, I think, for journalism to strike deals with the likes of um, OpenAI for example, in order to allow audiences to access their journalism, but in a way that's fair to them as well. And Peter, you mentioned in your talk there's things like so-called new Charlie Parker music being created with these tools. There's the infamous sort of uh, fake Drake recordings, I think. We've heard the kind of wretched Folsom Prison Blues Johnny Cash reworking of Barbie Girl and all sorts of other stuff. You made the point that the ownership of this is really far from clear in a lot of cases because is it Charlie Parker or Johnny Cash's IP or their estate, uh, no one really knows, right? So should we expect a lot more of this, this kind of new type of content, which is music-like, and yet we don't really know whose it is or who really created it? Well, exactly. If, if I mean, if you if you take an old song, a, 
a recording, say, made in 1910, AI can make it sound like it was made yesterday, which, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's quite clear who owns that. You know, that's, that's not going to be an issue. After, after all, if, if you take the characteristics that make Charlie Parker's music as an example, you can turn it into an algorithm. You can generate the sounds. So we'll have something which sounds like Charlie Parker, does the things that Charlie Parker did, because we can do that. Um, someone on TikTok uh, wrote a song and then used sort of AI Drake vocals, um, you know, to sing the song. So it sounded like Drake singing this total unknown person's song. Got, oh, millions, millions of hits on TikTok. It was huge. Now, the United, the record company, shut it down, and it's not quite clear on what kind of basis they did. They knew they didn't like it. The sort of thing shouldn't be happening because Drake is one of their artists. But Drake didn't write the song. Drake didn't actually sing on it, so I, I think I used the phrase, are they trying to copyright the essence of Drakeness here? Is this what they're trying to do? You know, so there is a lot of money involved, and I think that, of course, as ever with um, corporate ownership of culture and art, is going to make the real difference. And What might the, all this mean, Peter, for the broadcasting of music? You know, we have radio stations with a lot invested in their brands and their output and their styles and their on-air talent and all of that. But right now, as we already know, an individual can set up an entire instant station. There's outfits in the States you can go online and say, look, I, you know, program me a, an R&B-type station for an urban audience. They'll send you playlists. You know, they'll even create the branding and so on for a station. Does it mean that, in the end, the radio industry will be changed hugely by this? The radio industry, as such, has, has a lot of problems right now. Um, the biggest one, I do, you know, the latest uh, report from NZ On Air about where the audiences are, which, OK, has its problems, etc., etc. But it was pointing at these trends which are purely demographic. Ageing people are listening to radio, and even then they're starting to leave it because they've got the hang of streaming. Yeah, streaming uh, up to 50% daily usage, the way yeah. the audience's report uh, says. Almost as many people use Spotify every day, that's a yeah. one, at one in three, as, um, as listen to the radio, which is 39%, and that's way down from what it was just under 10 years ago when the first of these reports came out. Yeah, there are AI radio stations happening already um, in the States. I've listened to a few of them. But, yeah, they sound like commercial radio. And if you're getting the music you want and you're getting the person saying the things you want to hear, then that's probably successful commercial radio. And if a machine can do it, well, why should you care? That, this is what gets me about this stuff. You know, um, a lot of processes in radio the routine stuff, that'll get sped up just amazingly. I mean, if you can get ChatGP to write an essay, it can probably write a 30-second ad. As for the industry itself, yeah, this this could be a bit of a crunch, but because of all the digital changes that have gone on in terms of social media, in terms of streaming, in terms of individualising everything around us, you know, the so-called bubble habit, perhaps radio as an industry may need to think about, and I'm thinking commercial radio here, may need to think much harder about what it actually does and why it's doing it. <laughs> yeah, And there's a lot of technological determinism going on when people talk about this. You know, AI will destroy the world. AI will save the world. I mean, AI is a technology. You know, That's all it is. We come to it with all our ideologies, our attitudes, our fears, and all this sort of stuff. And when we put that word intelligence in there, we straight away anthropomorphize and we're going, oh, goodness me, it's watching me. The thing's got feelings. I don't know. Consciousness, you know, it's the hardest problem in philosophy. We, we don't make a lot of progress. And, and so we're granting the sort of idea of consciousness and self-awareness to AI to some degree, which at this point, it 
doesn't, you know, it doesn't have. Yeah, that, um, that's why it feels intrinsically weird when you, we saw, for example, people in the advertising business there last Wednesday at the event, you know, demonstrating it, saying oh, it's getting to the point where it's almost a collaborator in the creative process. Mm. And that seems weird because oh, we're just talking about software. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah that's all it is. Yeah, where, where, where is the agency from the software side of that? I mean, I used the phrase collaboration before, but only in the sense of it's like having a handy butler who gives you the right thing at the right moment. Just with, you know, it's a Jeeves, you know, it's got, it's got the right answer. It's got the uh, the right thing. It won't solve your love life. Maybe it will. I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, as I say, we, we, you know, we naturally just kind of uh, grant this kind of intelligence and, and sentience even and, and kind of awareness to this, to this software because that's how we tend to work with things. You know, we do it with animals, uh, non-human animals as well. But they they would be more self-aware than than any piece of AI. You know, a cockroach is more self-aware than an AI. Um, if, if we're going to do that, so so I think this is part of the problem too. Is the very language we use, which has all these presuppositions built into it, and it can make the conversation. You know, it, it could easily trail off into "Oh my God, the world is ending," or "Oh my God, here comes paradise." And neither of those two options are terribly realistic, I think. Yeah, and I mean AI in the journalism space as well. It's still very limited. I mean, mm. they're working to template. Essentially, they're filling yeah. out templates and fill, yeah, filling it in, and that's that's the extent. I mean, Business Desk, for example, is using AI at the moment. They just recently launched it to turn their NZX results into really basic news stories. So essentially, it's just filling in that template. In journalism, anyway, from that perspective, as long as you're being transparent around the use of AI, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, just watch the labelling on the can. Watch the labelling. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's interesting too because it's kind of different with an art form because a lot of the music we hear, you know, is it's fairly derivative. It's a pattern that works. You know, so when you use the software, it's what we really want. I'll, I'll respect AI when it starts putting grit into things, when it starts making wayward decisions, and it, you, you go to turn on and says, "Nah." can't be bothered today you know okay now <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. now we're dealing with with something that we could possibly call intelligent exactly. but, but are that's, we going that's the to opposite of your yeah. butler yeah. isn't yeah. it no, yeah exactly no, not doing it <laughs> not the doing surly it. butler there's, there's plenty of those in Woodhouse too yeah. So, yeah. yeah it's gonna be really interesting to see how it does have this wider impact in the media yeah and will, will we all end up kind of doing our own Turing test on things and if, if media don't disclose that AI was involved in its creation, are we going to be sitting there going, uh, that sounds like a machine did that? Yeah, I, I don't think it'll matter a damn. I mean, if the song makes you cry and laugh and sing, it's done its job. You know, it doesn't matter if an algorithm wrote it. The humans wrote the algorithm, if that's important to you. But And when it comes to art and that sort of thing, as long as it has the effect on you, does it really matter how it was made? That's a really fascinating question, I think, and we're probably going to find out over the next few years. That was Senior Lecturer in Communication Studies at the AUT, Peter Hoare, and we also heard from AUT researcher Hayley Jones earlier on. And both of them addressed the AI Plus Communication Symposium at AUT this week. Well, next week we'll look at how our biggest publisher of news is confronting and embracing AI, and a smaller one is already using it to create news stories in seconds. But for now, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this week. We'll be back again with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch during nights, and then back again at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.